This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is freelance voiceover artist Rowan Barker. Rowan has been one of the most recognisable voices on radio, having worked as a newsreader at WSFM, 2UE and 2GB after beginning his career in Armidale and Tamworth. He chats about what makes a good newsreader, being on air the night of the September 11 terror attacks, creating the news by being stabbed, and the world-famous wink-off. Rowan is someone I've known for close to 15 years and gives a terrific insight into all things media. So I really hope you enjoy our chat. Rowan Barker, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. What are you up to these days? Because it's been a little while since you left your career in radio and we'll go back and we'll uh, trod those old uh, paths. But what are you up to? I am now primarily a house husband, which is uh, a role I think I'm very privileged to perform. I've got two boys, one who's about to finish primary school at the end of this year and one in year three. And um, my wife and I were both working and we were just spending a fortune on nannies. And there was a point at which we decided there's probably a better way. Plus, we were both stressed, you know, and, and busy and all that sort of stuff. And somebody else was bringing up the kids. So, we decided that perhaps we should have a, a go at, um, you know, me stepping out. And I did that at the beginning of 2015. And uh, I'm really enjoying it, I must say. I get to play golf a bit during the week. And um, I also do a few voiceovers, host a few conferences, and I'm doing a bit of corporate writing, so just freelance stuff. It's the modern way, isn't it? Is the modern way. The flexibility is terrific. I'm here in the morning when the kids go to school. I'm here in the afternoon when they get home, you know, cricket training, music lessons, all that kind of stuff. So it's a great privilege as a dad to be able to do those kinds of things that our dads most likely didn't get to do. Would you have thought 20-odd years ago that that's where you'd be in your life and your career? No. 20 years ago, I just started in radio. So I was right at the beginning of the journey. Now I'm kind of, well, I hope I'm halfway through or not not quite. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, who knows, there may be radio in the future, but... No, that, you know, I, I was not even, hadn't even met my wife 20 years ago, anything like that. So there's the, the, the road that you end up traveling is almost always different from the one that you perhaps intend. It's funny how even in the modern day workplace that this style of living, particularly for men, is now uh, embraced and more and more people are doing it. Yeah. The flexibility is excellent, but it's probably also a function of, the lack of security that a lot of people have in their jobs, companies get downsized, um, you know, particularly in media at the moment, everyone's getting downsized. So you can't bank on the stability and security that a lifetime job used to present, you know, 50 years ago or, or 60 years ago when uh, our, when previous generations got into the workforce. I was the watch, them, wasn't it? I- exactly. That's Yeah, you, you, you put your head down and bum up and you, you've stayed in the one joint for 40 years. Now you're lucky to stay at a place for a couple of years. 
Um, and people have different desires as well, I guess. It's a different economy. It's a different marketplace. Technology gives you a lot more flexibility as well. And what's it mean for you in terms of, you mentioned the kids before, just having that extra role in, in their life as, as they grow up, whereas perhaps, you know, your dad or my dad might have left at 6.30 in the morning. He wouldn't be home until 7 at night and we sort of missed out on, on seeing them at, at, like you said, like at cricket training or, or something like that or, yeah. you know, just the fact that they didn't have that massive role. They were perhaps there for the weekend, although my dad sort of worked six or seven days days a week because mm. as a small business owner, that's what he had to do. So yeah. we we're very reliant on upbringing from our mothers. Yeah. Well, single income household primarily when I was a kid. My dad had a bit of flexibility because he was a GP and he had his own practice, but he would leave at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning and, and come home at 6.30 at night, he might come home during the day because his surgery wasn't far from our house, but I wasn't there in the middle of the day. So, you know, that was kind of immaterial once he started school anyway. Um, but it was mum and, it, you know, it was just ever thus. Uh, most people, their mum was the one at home if there was a parent at home. It's less and less unusual now for it to be a dad and they're around here and at the local school where my kids go, there are quite a few dads who either work from home or are not the primary breadwinner, um, you know, both of which kind of applies to me, luckily. And that's the other thing. How you, you know, you've got to have a – the flexibility is great, but I'm also lucky enough to have a, a partner who uh, is happy to work full time and, you know, and, and makes enough money that I don't actually have to work, which is a great treat. And I'm sure the boys enjoy it as well, like having you yeah, around more often. Well, they do. And because I did work and I was away, the, the job I had after radio, I did quite a few events um, and travelled a bit and whatever. So I was, you know, out or home late, leaving early, um, away. So I did miss out on quite a few of those things in their formative years. But for the last couple of years, it's been terrific and I, you know, I hope I've been able to make up for lost time. Let's go back in time. Radio is perhaps where people recognise you the most from your time as a newsreader. Where did that fascination all begin for you? Because we've had different people on this podcast series that have different entry points or different mm. fascinations or different way that they came into it. What, what, yeah. What's your story? And it was newsreading in particular, but it wasn't radio to start off with. It was James Dibble on the ABC in the right. 70s. Yeah. Um, and he just happened to live not far from where I did. So I'd see him around as well occasionally. And he was just a guru. He was the, the man as yeah. far as I was concerned as a kid. Um, and I, what I didn't have any idea about was how to get into doing it. And because there were so few people who did it, it seemed really, really unattainable, whether it be TV or radio news reading. Because in those days there were four TV stations. Yeah. So there were really only four. There were four people who did that job. I mean, you had a better chance of being an astronaut, right? <laughs> so so true. The, the idea that I could do that was Not just, on the radar. Well, yeah, I didn't even conceive it as a possibility. It was a fantasy. So um, and then through the – in the 70s also I listened to – I did love my wireless. I had a little portable transistor. And I used to listen to the top 40 with, you know, Casey Kasem on a yeah. Sunday night uh, and Father Jim McLaren on 2SM yeah. in, on a Sunday night as well. And then as I got a bit older, I started listening to 
double J and then triple J when it became triple J in 83 or whenever that was. Um, and I listened to a lot of people on the radio like Tim Ritchie, Gail Austin and Angela Caterns, who obviously is um, you mm. know, back on the wireless or was anyway. Yeah. So um, people like that. And then commercial FM turned up and, you know, Doug Mulray was the big star in, in the early days of FM brekkie. And I ended up working briefly with Doug when he came back to radio at 2WS. But there were people, you know, you'd, you'd hear. And, again, it was the unattainability of it and the trying to figure out how to actually forge a path in it, was, which was the tricky bit. And it took me a while. It took me a while to do it. Now, let's talk about that. So, university, was that your pathway? It was, but not the usual pathway. I did go to university in Bathurst, yep. but I didn't do journalism degree. Yeah. No, no, I did a business degree. Um, but while I was there, I got into doing community radio. The and that happened through almost through pure chance as well. So I, why why was it why was it business that you chose and not journalism, or was it again that whole thing of like, yeah, it's something that I want, but am I actually going to be able to do it? Do I, I, I didn't. I don't think I even knew that there was a, a degree, a communications degree. I didn't even know that I was aware of it as a field. I when I first finished school, I went to um, uni and did science, but dropped out after about ten weeks because it just wasn't for me. So then I worked for three years doing various things, including working for a marketing company. So I thought, oh, marketing, I'm, you know, I might do, I'll do that. So I yeah. did. That's what I applied for and, and did uh, a business degree with a major in marketing. But my O week leader in my dorm, because of course I'd left Sydney, I was grew up in Sydney and uh, went up to Bathurst Uni. One of the O-Week leaders in my dorm was a guy who I'm still really good mates with who is a journalist and was a journalism student and had also had been there for a couple of years and was involved in the community radio station at the uni. And he took me there, you know, in the first week and introduced me to all these people who are still friends of mine, you know, 25 years later, most of whom are journos. Um, and I started doing talking newspaper on the, on the radio. and. Yeah. It wasn't hard to get a gig because there weren't that many people wanting to do it, which I found strange because there were lots of communication students. I was going to say, like... If you want to get good at this, there's really only one way to do it. And if you are you really want to get good at reading the news, reading the news out of a newspaper, especially a local newspaper, because we used to do the... What is it? The Central West Advocate and the Orange Western Daily, whatever it was. But they weren't brilliantly written. And there were often typos and things. So if you were, I used to challenge myself and try to make sure that I could actually deliver it in a comprehensible fashion. And you're reading it sight unseen. You know, I didn't turn up three hours before and no. mark it up and whatever. <laughs> I just sat down five minutes before and, you know, put an asterisk on the stories that I was going to read. And well, you, well essentially, well, I mean, we'll, we'll sort of get to techniques and, and other things <laughs> later, but um, you're just reading out loud. Exactly. On the radio, into a microphone, you know, with very little preparation. So that... Practice at sight reading probably started while I was at uni and it was a number of years after that before I got into radio proper. But I'd done, you know, a, a shift at least. I used to do a music shift and I'd at least do one talking newspaper. Was it half an hour? It might have even been an hour. And that's a lot of reading. But, gee, you get good at it if you – because, you you know – well, it's concentration it. and it's it's a whole lot of skills coming together. Yeah. And I guess for the most part is f- for most people, 
getting used to hearing how you sound yeah. is often very difficult because if people yeah. get interviewed, they often wonder, do I sound like that? But if you're practicing and you're listening back, you get a general grasp of that's how I sound Correct. to the outside world. Yeah, um, and you get comfortable with it, which is good because you, you don't have to have a brilliant voice. It doesn't hurt if you've got a nice voice, but you, it's about the modulation and the, the emphasis and, 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 and telling the story. And, you know, one of the things I've always said about radio is you don't have to know what you're talking about. You just have to sound like you do, right? <laughs> it's it's so the true. magic of radio. You, you can sound like an expert. If you can read copy well and make sense of it, you can sound like you know everything about everything. So in that formative period, <laughs> that's where you picked up those skills by just churning out. I mean, they talk about flying hours. Exactly. exactly. 10,000 flying hours to, to get good at anything, and yeah. that's where your flying hours were. Correct. And I, I started there, and then I – so I was at uni from, you know, 91, 92, 93, then finished and, and, and then was trying to figure out how to make a path. But because I'd made some friends who did communications and one of my friends in particular, Rachel Hines, who was on 2SM uh, after she finished uni, she put me in touch with some people and one of the things I used to do also was on a Saturday night I would drive up to Gosford to one of the stations up there. I think it was CFM in those days. Right. And sit with the guy who was panelling the Hot 40 on a Saturday night. That was how I spent my Saturday nights in my, you know, for a good few number of months over and over and over again. I went up and met the program director, whose name escapes me at the moment up there, who said, right, you know, if you're interested, yep, you can come in and, and hang out and just have a look. Um, and I know this is a, you know, a, a path that a lot of people have taken in the past. You've just got to go and, and be there. Um, and as I say, I spent my Saturday nights learning how to panel at a station on the Central Coast, driving up from Sydney when, uh, you know, everyone else was out on the Terps. I was sitting in a radio studio with one other guy um, learning the ropes. I guess that's also a great lesson for anybody listening is that you've got to be prepared to do that kind of stuff. It's not going to fall in your lap. No. It, you know, people say, it's, it, I find it frustrating. People say, oh, I always wanted to do that. Well, have a go. Yeah. You know. I You've only got I one life, don't exactly. you? Exactly. I, did, I didn't know how to do it, but I kind of, you know, you just use whatever means you can to find a, a, a way to do it. Um, and that was how it happened for me. Then I was working at that time um, for, it was a News Limited subsidiary, but it was, I wasn't doing media. I was doing, I was an account manager, but I was doing voiceovers for Phone competition lines, because I used to work for a company called Broad System, who in the days before the internet, if you wanted to enter a competition, you had to ring a 0055 That's right. number. Yes. And we ran, you know, banks and banks and banks of phone lines for various companies. Um, and I was writing scripts and doing VOs for all the competition lines that we'd run for, you know, companies all over the country. So it was um, an, an interesting little sidelight. And as part of that, my boss at the time said, look, if you want to do a voiceover course, we'll pay for it for you. And I went, right, all okay, right, you're cool. guilty. So I started looking into those and, um, again, spoke to some people I knew um, who I'd been to uni with and they said, well, the Australian Film, Television and Radio School runs short courses. So I signed up for one of those 
1995, it would have been, second half of 1995, um, and went up and, and, and started doing that. It was a couple of nights a week for six weeks or something like that. Um, and that was terrific. And, of course, through there I met uh, Lucy and Joy, who was the head of the radio department at the t- film, TV, radio school at that stage. And she said to me, oh, you know, why don't you apply for the full-time commercial broadcasting course so they do a seven-month full-time right. course and up there. At that stage, it was a very elite and select group, wasn't it? it? It was, and it was a real surprise to me, and this is, you know, gave me a bit of confidence because she said, well, I think you should apply, and I went, oh, yeah, but hasn't the application period closed? And she went, yeah, yeah, but don't worry about that. And I went, oh, uh, okay then, yeah. right. So that was, you know, it was like, hang on. This this is this could be a thing here. <laughs> you know? Yeah, this is this is a real opening and a real opportunity, and um, you know, sure enough, I you know applied and I, I got in, um, and they take about a thousand applicants every year, and there are twelve spots, and I just yeah. went, wow, how good's this? You know, yeah. Um, and I worked, uh, went, I went there with some people, you know, who's still in in radio and and um and the media. David Spears of Sky News was in my year at um, at Afters and people like Jason Morrison were the year ahead or two couple of years ahead. Um and um it was amazing. I did as many hours for that afters course as I did for my entire undergrad degree because it was six or seven months, 40, 50 hours a week. We were there all day, every day, smashing it out, getting taught by the best people in the industry because it was backed by Commercial Radio Australia. Of course, yeah. So you get terrific opportunities to meet people but also, you know, get trained by them and and learn pretty much everything there is about radio from, you know, panelling and technique to on-air announcing, news, copywriting, production. You do the whole lot, which is terrific. Did you find it advantageous for you in terms of you being, say, a little bit older than the, the average person that were yeah. coming in? So you had a bit of life experience. You dabbled in a couple of things mm. and then sort of thought, well, hang on, yeah. maybe this is a thing. They do try to, at afters, take people who have already done a degree. It is actually now a postgraduate diploma or something yes. like that. Yeah. So. It wasn't in those days. It hadn't kind of been formalised to that degree, but they would preferred you to be a few years down the track. There was one guy, Matty Granland, who's a, uh, an AFL caller these days in Melbourne. Yep. That's all he ever wanted to do. He was 18, but everyone else was 22 minimum, um, probably 22 up to 30. I guess I was kind of in the middle. I was 25 when I started. So they do try to get people, and it's. I think it is to – have so you have got a bit of life experience, and so yep. you you have made a decision, uh, and you 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 know that this is it's something not that you just really... your first toy in the toy shop. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, you would have learnt a whole lot given the fact that you were living and breathing it every day, every day. And we had people like on the news side of things, Russell Powell um, and Ian Ferguson, Jason Morrison, people like that coming in. And Jason was only a couple of years out, but he. Worked seven days a week and, you know, it was just a, he's a junkie. He still is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, just yeah. a news junkie. So to have those experiences and people, you know, Nigel Blunden was a year ahead of us who you know, ended up reporting Channel 9. Um, and they also gave you 
an idea of where it could where this could take you and, and and where it could lead so was it news reading that was always the interest for you or was there the whole announcing side of it where yeah. where did it where did it sort of go so it, it it obviously it evolved into to something that you were sort of more comfortable in but i imagine knowing you as i do you would have been someone that was keen to try and work out what it was and it wasn't mm. going to be an, an instant decision for not you. at all and Given that it was 20 years ago, which doesn't sort of seem that long ago, but radio was totally different in those days and there were jobs in the country to go to. And pretty much everybody out of that course got a job at a country radio station somewhere and you had to be prepared to just pack up and go. Now, um, I I got a job before the course actually finished. So I started uh, a job on... July 1, 1996 at 2AD in Armidale. And if anyone's been to Armidale in July, you'll know that it's bloody cold. (laughs) And uh, living up there on a radio, you know, junior radio announcer's wage, I wasn't living in the most salubrious accommodations. No, I can imagine. So it was freezing, but it was great fun. And three days a week, one of my jobs was to panel the John Law Show. And I was sitting in a studio with an upright panel that was older than I was with Bakelite knobs, you know, listening to the Laws show. And, you know, they'd pulse down the line for your ads to kick off and blah, blah, blah. You'd have to just sit there and make sure that everything was was going to air and, uh, you know, the right right channels open and right faders in the right positions. And um, that was a great grounding. And that's how you learn to, you know, make sure that the right noise is, is, is coming out of your radio station. But also, in addition to that, you'd get to produce ads, you'd get to voice ads, and then on weekends I used to host a you know a six-hour shift um, breakfast show kind of thing, and we'd do funeral announcements and you know community service announcements and all these kinds of things. So, what did that do for your career in terms of just having that pure understanding of okay, well now I'm at a real radio station, yeah. I'm not in Sydney, but this is how it works and I can develop my talent in a whole heap of different areas. Yeah, and the opportunity to do all the different things around the station so that you understand how the business works. Only a small station at that stage and one of the things that lured me up there was the promise that they were about to put a an FM station uh, to air. didn't happen in my time there and it, the, <laughs> the air date got pushed back and pushed back mm. and pushed back. But what it did was um, also gave me exposure to other people within that network because it was part of the Corrales Super Radio Network. Right. And um, lots of the hub programming, particularly for the AM, it all came out of Tamworth, which is an hour or so down the road. So I you know, got to know the guys down there and it was about seven months later um, the program director down there, Michael Church, you know, got in touch through Mark Fabrizzi, who had been a year ahead of me at Afters as well. All these connections always keep coming into play. And Mark had said, well, I'm – I think he was – was he leaving? Someone was leaving and, and uh, there was a job opening up as sort of station floater. Right. So down at Tamworth at 2TM where there was already uh, an FM station up and running. They used to do the country music out of there, 24 hours networked. And we'd do network programs from there on the weekends as well. Um, and they had a newsroom. So early 1997, I was down at 2TM, you know, much bigger station, much bigger market than Armadale, 
with many, many, many more opportunities because two stations and network programming and a newsroom. So, Who was the one that sort of helped you along the way the most when you think about those days in Armidale and, and Tamworth that yeah. had, an, had an influence on you that sort of taught you what you needed to know for that time? And mm. um, I guess, you know, Afters was a, a great grounding, but it's never the same unless, uh, unless you're actually, you know, no. doing it. No substitute for doing it. There's no question about that. Um, Tamworth was really interesting because they had a couple of announcers, um, including Doug Keith, who had been at WS, I think, in the 70s and 80s. Um, so vastly experienced announcers and uh, who'd been there for a while at that point. So they had a lot of really good intel to share and in terms of techniques and presentation styles and various other bits and pieces. Um Phil Corbett was in the newsroom at that stage. He was the one who first, you know, sort of taught me how to write a news story. Uh, in those days, all our audio was on carts, but you could do a phone interview. Yep. You'd, you'd do your phone interview, record it on a reel-to-reel, and then you'd drop the bit of, you know, of audio that you wanted. You'd do a drop edit and just basically time it so that you'd hit your cart up to record at the start of the grab that you wanted and then you'd, you know, press the stop button to put the pulse on it at the end. Some people would have no idea what you just said. <laughs> I do because when I first came in, carts were still in and reel oh, to reel yeah. was still in and I learned how to splice and do all those Absolutely. kind of things yeah. and yeah. now it's all with di- digital technology. It's all just done so effortlessly. It's, it's uh, a lot easier. There's no question about that. Yeah, the old China graph pencil and your splice <laughs> block and all those tools of the trade that we used to. I mean, we used to, on the weekends up there, I also used to host um, a jukebox kind of program, 50s, 60s and 70s program. So I used to actually also play records. So there there would be times and there'd be some songs that we'd only have on reel-to-reel. Yeah. There'd be some songs that would be on cart, there'd be some on CD and there'd be some on actually on vinyl. So I'd have four or five different sources of music and you'd be queuing things up uh, in, you know, in between the tracks and, and your ads were, the ads were actually on a computer. That was yeah. the, the highest tech wow. thing. About the, about Audio vaults. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was amazing. But the news was still very antiquated yeah. in terms of its presentation technology. Yeah. But... Again, you, that's a you, real panel right there. That's a paneling shift, like that. Yes, yeah, correct. Yeah, you, you, you're quite you're quite busy. This is none of this sitting there twiddling your thumbs, scrolling or through websites because you're actually getting things out of cases or out of record sleeves and 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 you know queuing up the record and oh. making sure that you only had your record player on the queue channel and not actually going to air. And you know, there's also all sorts of mistakes you can make as well. But um, great fun, and you you do learn. Uh, You've got to get organised. And that was the thing that I learned, particularly in the news. If you're running a news bulletin and you've got, you know, paper scripts and a stack of carts and you've only got two cart machines. So the other thing you've got to learn to do is load load and unload your carts quickly and quietly. Um, You got your first two in and then obviously your first one comes out when your second one's playing and then cart three goes in while cart two's playing and et cetera, et cetera. So it was a juggling act par excellence. But if you can do that, gee, it was easy to when you get down to Sydney and you've actually got the technology to record stuff on computer and edit it on computer. It's a walk in the park. I just remember those days. You mentioned Ian Ferguson earlier, but part of my work experience was going into 2GB and I just marvelled at the fact that 2GB back in those days, it was an hour news bulletin at midday. Mm. Ian Ferguson, 
used to carry in 25 carts yeah. every day. <laughs> yes. And I just would sit through the other window because I was with Andrew Moore and Gil Taylor and Bill Fisher in the sports department yeah. watching him just work the, 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 the yeah. carts while reading the news. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing ever. And then, mm. you know, there were times when people didn't put the carts in properly or they were – Yeah. Ian Ferguson used to come out and throw them at people. But <laughs> um, it was because just – If your pulse isn't on there properly in the right spot, you can get all sorts of other uh, – But you know. it's just looking at that in action and just thinking, yeah. wow, this guy's actually putting something out on the, on the radio – you would never know what was going on behind no, the scenes. It's like the proverbial duck, isn't it? You know, it all looks smooth and serene from above. Underneath, there's a whole lot more going on. For you to learn that skill, like you said, to to then bring that to, to Sydney would have been yeah. really, really great for your, your career. It was. So I was in um, Tamworth until probably mid, mid-98. mid So I did two years in the country. While a lot of my mates from uni went to England to work after uni, I spent yeah. a couple of years in the country because if you want to work in Australian radio, you're really, in those days, you had to go and start somewhere in, in a regional area and make your mistakes and learn how everything works. You know, I used to voice commercials, but produce commercials as well. So you learn how this, you know, how everything goes together and what an effort it was to to put all the you know the ad schedules together, avoid voice clashes in your ad breaks, just the whole the whole box and dice of radio. But yeah, that was where I got my taste for doing news. And then August nineteen ninety eight, uh, I got offered a job at Two WS, and so I moved back to Sydney. And who was in charge then at that stage? Was Steve Lander in the news director? No, he Steve had not long left. I don't think it was Glenn Daniel and yep. and Greg Hendricks. Um, and those guys were amazing. They you couldn't have me, learned from two I know. better radio, and I don't use this term loosely, but professionals. Correct. Yeah, they they were so encouraging and welcoming for somebody who made a I'm going to say a very inauspicious start because boy was I nervous the first time I read. Really, you don't you, you never struck me as a nervous person ever because you always come across so. Confident, and you you know what you have to do to I, I, get by. You yeah. picked that up, or you, was that was that a, a bluff? The further on you get, the better you are at it, obviously. And and it's, this is the, you know, it's back to the ten thousand hours. Later on, um, wouldn't wouldn't have been that long after I started that I was pretty comfortable doing it. But I will never forget reading my first bulletin on the radio in Sydney, even though I'd read, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of them in the country. It's just not the same thing. And you knew that the whole management team was listening. Steve Raymond was still was there as well. He was the current affairs director in yeah. those days and, you know, vastly experienced man who, you know, I'd seen on the TV and heard on the radio for my whole life, basically. There is thinking, there's, there's something about that is up. hearing or seeing those people that, You'd only ever heard on the radio or, like you said, seen on the TV and then you're in the same room as them and then it's... And they're treating you like a colleague. Yes. kind of going, I'm pinching myself, going, is this really happening? Yeah. And I read my first news bulletin. It was a a 9am bulletin midweek, you know, so nothing special in terms of the timing. It wasn't 6am breakfast or anything. But I could feel my voice shaking and I, I got out and I was... 
nervous as buggery, and it, but I've I've got through it and I've got out, and and they just smiled at me and went, "Okay, how'd that go?" And I said, "Oh, it was pretty, you know, whatever." Not that happy, but happy to get it out of the way, but not that happy with how it had gone. Mm. Um, and then, of course, you know, straight back on the bike for ten o'clock. Yeah. And Steve Raymond, I'll never forget, rang rang after the bulletin just went. That sounded like a bloke who's been reading the news for years. So it took didn't take long, but it was and it was such a relief. Yeah. And to get that really positive feedback was terrific. But it just I just had to shake the nerves out, I guess. Yeah. And you know, one down, not so good. Second one down, happy days. So then how much did you learn in that particular newsroom? Because obviously it's it was much bigger than what it is now. It, and it, it, that, that was actually not long after it had been considerably downsized. Right. Um, it was. We still had links to GB in those yep. days and sharing audio, um, but... There were really only six or seven people, and that was for the seven days. So I'd do three days during the week, and um, and a weekend afternoon shift or, or something like that in those days. Um, and Georgia Hawkins and Helen Archibald were there in those days with Glenn and and Hendo and myself. And those guys, the brevity that they teach you, how to write tight copy that still says everything that it needs to say oh, yeah. without extraneous words, without, you know, unnecessary time taken up. It oh. was just something that... Glenn's still the best there is. Like, yeah. Oh. You, you, you can't believe how good they are at it until you actually sit there doing it. And you'd write a bit of copy and, and then, you know, put it in. And you can't be precious about this stuff, especially nah. when you're learning. You've got to go, these guys know what they're doing and they're helping me to be become a better writer. Or And self-editing is a difficult thing to do as well. So if you can get good at that, and that's what these guys were really kind of teaching you. And, you know, Glenn, had, you'd write something that was three and a half, four lines and he'd come back with something that was two lines that had all the same impact and information in it as what you'd written. And you just go, how'd you do that? You look at it and it's just like, the penny drops like, yeah. okay, <clears throat> well, the greatest thing he ever taught me and I still talk about it now is the word that. Mm. You can just get rid of it immediately. Okay. And okay. I still notice it now as like young ones coming through. I'm just like, yep. see that word? Yep. Gone. Don't need it. Gone. <laughs> it's, yeah. just, it's just the easiest thing but you never think about that when you're putting a, a news bulletin together. Mm. Um, and just like you say, just getting rid of absolutely everything that doesn't need to be there yep. because – it's an old habit that people rely on, the old copy and paste from AAP, which it's written for newspapers. Yeah. And it's written in past tense and it has no relevance yep. to, to radio whatsoever. As soon as you learn significant that. Significant tweaking. Yeah. Uh, you can use the basis of a, of a story, but sure. you can find that you can get rid of so many words. Yeah. Yeah. And and you want to be able to cover some ground in a radio bulletin. You want to keep it interesting and you want to be able to update stories that you've been following earlier in the day, but you don't, you can't be repetitive. You need to keep stories moving along. And these are all the things that you learn from, you know, guys who, who had, uh, you know, years and years of experience. Oh, I mean, Andrew Moore taught me the most going from starting in sport and now doing news as I do. I found that a particularly good grounding because 
Andrew would get within a 60-second sports bulletin eight stories. Yeah. So I would aim for that myself mm. when mm. doing sport. Okay, so one line on this, one line on that. So when you then move across to news, you're already used to writing short, sharp yep. sentences. It's just a breeze. Like yeah. it's then it's obviously supported with audio and you've got a whole lot more time, but you can get a whole lot more stories in. So mm. just that learning factor, how much of that improved your skills and you're able to sort of, you oh. know, your, your voice is obviously already there, but learning how to do those things from those guys and getting the amount of information across and, like you said, as many stories as, as, as possible or, or just using the time that you've got Wisely. To get everything in yeah, there, yeah. That's right. You, you you might have three and a half or four minutes of news, you know, even at a talk station these days, it's it's unlikely to be any more than that. There, there were times when we did have significantly longer bulletins and we used to see how long they could go at some <laughs> later stages. But anyway, we might get onto that a bit later. Um, but you, you want to – there are key stories that you need to be covering and that if you're – Wasting time with unnecessary information or out-of-date information on something, then you're missing out on being able to run something else. So um, I learned a whole lot from those guys and I'd like to think that, you know, my writing improved massively in the time that I was there, which didn't end up being that long. But, um, gee, what a great grounding. And, and you're right, I couldn't have learned from two better people to, you know, how to write concisely, you know, light, tight and bright. Just get it done. Get it, get it in there. Just the facts. And what about the whole managing time thing? Because I think that's a trick for a whole lot of people that come into the yep. industry is that there's always 60 minutes on the clock or there's always 30 minutes on the <laughs> clock until your, your next bulletin. So if, you, if you're doing headlines on the quarter hours and news on the half, you, you've got maybe eight minutes or six, you know, nine minutes in between getting off air for one thing and being on air for your next thing. So speed and accuracy, how do you combine those two yep. things to get it right and get it because that's the most important part of any yep. news bulletin is the accuracy of yep. it, along with uh, the, I guess, the, the diction and all of those things and making sure that you don't stumble a lot. But I still think that if you don't have the words there, you can't read them, right? Correct. And I remember filling in for Glenn when he was on holidays. Um, this would be kind of late 98 or maybe early 99, I guess. And so doing the breakfast show, on that was Hans and Kaylee in those days, Hans Torv and Kaylee Harris uh, on breakfast at WS. But we used to do the news for 96.1 as well. So um, that different kind of program, different style, different audience. Um, but I would get in because there was no overnight news at WS. The last news bulletin of an evening was 7 p.m. First one in the morning's 5 so you know that you've just got to get in and and go through the papers if they were there or because didn't really have online access in those days, certainly not to the degree that we do now. Um, wire copy, but there was – and there may have been some stuff left out for Brekkie for, on GB because we had the access to those stories. But there wasn't, unlike other places, an overnight journo keeping things up to speed. So you had to start from scratch every day. So I would get in if I was doing breakfast first probably at five. I'd be there at half past two, you know, at the latest. So you're getting up at one thirty in the morning, which is just weird. That, that's not early. That's the middle of the night. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I used to go to bed at 5.30 or 6 in the evening so I could get try and get six or seven hours 
sleep in, get up at 1.30 because I was living probably 45-minute drive away from the station, which was in Levon's Lane at uh, at um, Seven Hills in those days. But you just had to get there and, and, you know, you knew you had regular bulletins to do all throughout the morning and the 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 later in the morning, the busier it got with Polly's ringing in to give grabs, you know, you'd ring the cops and the fireys and ambos to see if they had anything. So all of a sudden you're accumulating more content but in a raw form that you've then got to write and edit your grabs and then formulate into a bulletin and then go and read it. Um, so, yeah, it's a challenge. But being organised, and you just you, you can't really procrastinate. There just is, there's no time. There's no time. You've just got to get in, put your head down. You've got to be able to make a quick decision. You've got to be able to synthesise information really quickly, decide which the important bits are so that you can then write nice brief copy which contains the crux of the story in a digestible fashion. And those skills are transferable to just about anything that you want to name. I guess that would have prepared you well for the next step in your career, which was going across to to your week. Yeah, it was. I hadn't long been at um, WS. I'd probably only been there for eight or nine months. So it was uh, April or May 99. Uh, and I'd been graded um, as a journo at, at WS and I – People but would ask I, what that is these days as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it didn't last long either because- Were you I, in the union then at that stage? I don't know. I might have been. Because I, I think you, been. you I may think have had to, I think to, it, to, to get the grading. Compulsory. Yeah. yeah. I think, there, yeah, there was some connection there, wasn't there? But I I'd got offered a job over at- It was in the 2UE newsroom, but actually as the Sky um, Breakfast newsreader. Right. And it's when they had all of the rural stations that correct, yeah, you had to read to. Yeah, they did um, all the regional kind of services. So, we, and I got offered. Oh, I'm going to say it was another. It was ten or twelve thousand dollars more. It was a significant amount of money, mm. um, which in Sydney, you know, made a massive difference because I wasn't getting paid much more than probably thirty grand, thirty two thousand dollars. Yeah, maybe, um, and I got offered a, a chunk more. And not only was it more money, it was Monday to Friday, discreet breakfast shift from you know four thirty to twelve thirty, whatever it was, um, and no weekends. And I kind of and I, I jumped at it. It's probably now looking back, I probably took it uh, a little too hastily. I don't know that I was quite ready for what happened. Because things happened quite quickly when I got to Sky and the, the news director at the time was Angie Nelson and she left not long after and I almost by default became the news director. Right. Um, and I realised very quickly how little I knew about the management side of it and, you know, staff development because I'd only really been doing it for a couple of years myself. Um, and particularly in Sydney, I'd only been there for probably a year. So I really didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. It was, you know, Donald Rumsfeld's unknown unknowns. Um, but it was a it was a great learning curve, very steep learning curve. Um, and I, I still had, I for years and years after, you'd meet people and they go, oh, yeah, I used to hear you on the news in, you know, out back wherever. Yeah. Because you know, that went around the country, that, that news service. You don't strike me as someone that lacks that kind of, I don't know, confidence or uh, particularly when it comes to managing people because- when we sort of first crossed paths, 
you were very giving in terms of your advice for people that were coming through. So to hear you say that you struggled with that initially, I'm a bit surprised by that. Yeah, well, that was it was initially, and it, and it was something that that you know it didn't last very long, primarily because the job didn't last very long yeah. because. Um, everything changed not long after. New owners and new owners, yes. Yeah, so Southern Cross came in. When was that? End of two thousand and one, I guess. Yeah, yeah mid two thousand and one. Um, and the Sky newsroom, such as it was, was fully incorporated into the two UN newsroom, which was great for me. Yeah. Um, because then I actually. So how did it work before that? You obviously so we saw kind of, those guys. Yeah, and- we were just in a little booth yeah. off to the side. We had our own little section, and we'd go and pre-record bullies in the news booths. You know, at ten to the hour or five to the hour or whatever it was. Yeah. So, yeah, it was like reading it. You know, still like reading a live bulletin, but it was just going out to all the network stations. Um, and then I then I became part of the two UN newsroom proper. You know, with Sandy Eloise and Greg Burns and. Bronwyn Martin and Justin Kelly and Josh Murray and, you know, a cast of thousands. Lance Norley and Ian Craven were, were there in those days as well. And so, again, people with vast experience. Steve Blander was the breakfast newsreader. Um, and 2UE in those days had Jones at breakfast, Laws in the morning, Stanley in afternoons and Mike Carlton at night, followed by Stan Zamanik in the evening and um, and the sports show with you know with Peter Bosley. So it was a it was a big deal star lineup, mm. and they had the continuous call on the weekend with Raymond. Ray was this Ray wasn't on air really in those days. He was Lawsy's fill in, yeah, and the sports guy. So you know, whole different kettle of fish. But that was I, I kind of got in at the tail end of the real halcyon days of Two UE because they had a proper sports department as well. Yeah, you know Jimmy Dolan and Damian Kelly and Dougal Saunders and Murray Shaw. So there was you know plus Ray, he was the sports director, and John Brennan was the program director. What so was, was what was that? What was magic. that like coming into that and seeing that firsthand? As as you said, it was probably at the tail end of the the halcyon days, but the, it was Two UE was the number one station in town, and it was by a mile. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, uh, I, I want to sort of say, one of those uh, eras of, of glory days of, of radio, really, because they, yes. they didn't have any changes in lineup. It was rock solid. And then when you, you mentioned there some of the, the names that were involved in, in the newsroom as well, it was an all-star mm-hmm. cast in the newsroom too. Absolutely. And it was, it was successful for mine because it was, there was something for everyone. On uh, on two UE in those days, and I'm not quite sure what changed or what precipitated the change in terms of the you know the politics, because you you had it kind of went from right to left as the day went on. That was my well, that's my assessment of it anyway. Mm. You know, you had something for the conservatives in the morning, and then Lawsy with his you know common sense kind of approach to things, pragmatic kind of mm. approach. John Stanley was. Pretty neutral, and because of his journalism background, was um, probably a bit more kind of even-handed mm. than than a lot of the others. And then Mike Carlton is a bit of a progressive. So I thought as the day went through, it really did cater to everybody in terms of who you wanted to listen to. And then, of course, you just had the rat baggery, the uh, you know the comedic rat baggery of Stan Zamanik at night, telling people where to go and and, and having a, a great old time. So I guess again, that would have been another great learning curve for you in yep. terms of watching a number of professionals at work, yes. close at hand, yeah, and then from your own point of view in the newsroom as well where 
as uh, somebody, uh, Clinton Maynard pointed out yeah, he a was. couple of episodes ago, <laughs> Murray Olds was the designated Olympics reporter mm. at that and stage Ed as Buller well. Yeah. Uh, um, came to join us as well yeah. from around the rings, so, uh, you know, a, a, an Olympics nut. Like, yeah. So, so what were you like when you were in that, turning up to work every day? What was that? What was that like as someone that had obviously loved radio, had a proper, I use that term, um, you know, going back to how it was, a proper grounding in terms yep. of going to the country, yeah. making your way back to Sydney and then being at the number one station. It was a joy. It was just amazing. And those people were so helpful and giving with their time and that, you know, you'd write a bit of copy and file it. And, you know, so Burnsy, you'd say, hey, Rowie, just come and have a look at this, mate. Let's just, I'm going to show you, get your bit of copy and I'm going to show you how we can make that better. And Sandy was the same and Bronnie was the same and Steve Bland was the same. Um, just listening to Steve Blandy, you can learn how to, you know, read the news as much as anything because he's just so bloody good at it. Um, but to be in there in those days, it was awesome. It was such a good place to work up to a point when, you know, everything changed. But I went from after the Sky newsroom got sort of amalgamated into the UE newsroom, I went from my cushy um, – Monday to Friday thing to doing evenings and weekends. And I used to read the news for the continuous call for, for a while there because um, I think because Ray was confident that I could actually time out and that I knew I was going to get the football scores right. <laughs> Pretty essential part when you're doing anything for Ray, the whole accuracy thing. Um, sure. But did, and did, also did. the timing out thing was crucial because – the last thing you want is a couple of seconds of dead air. Now, talk to me about that. How did you learn that skill? Because, again, not everybody has it. No. You've got to learn pretty darn quickly how to do it. The the key to it for me was you've got to know how long you're out, your, your tag is. So if you know that it takes you six seconds to say you're, you know, I'm Rowan Barker on in the 2UE News where you don't miss a thing or whatever it was in those days, you had to know exactly how long that took took you to say. And then if you needed to adjust, I would edit weather on the fly. That was generally how Katoomba, you did it. Katoomba, Bankstown, bloody exactly. the whole lot. Well, you, you can choose to say, you know, fine tomorrow or is it fine tomorrow with a top of 23, fine on Thursday, the chance of a shower Friday, whatever it might be. You can – there are things that you can adjust leave out. You, you've got to – but if you don't know how long your, your little outro is – then that's your starting point. But you do learn to read the clock backwards, basically. You know that you've got a timeout at five past and you know that that, you know, six seconds and you've got 23 seconds of weather and 44 seconds of sport. So you know when you need to start that. It, it, it just kind of ends up hopefully happening automatically so that you, you know, you're getting out bang on because you're on a network program uh, and it has to finish on time. You mentioned things change there at 2UE when Southern Cross came in and there was a whole lot of <laughs> redundancies and there was a whole lot of um, changes in terms of personnel uh, and I'm talking announcers leaving mm. to go across to 2GB yeah. at that stage and had you left already and then signed up with 2GB? What was yeah. it like? Yeah, I, it was interesting. <laughs> of course, the, you know, the Southern Cross people came in and went, no, nothing to worry about. We're not going to change anything. We're just going to have a look. Mm. 
And then the next day, 30 people got punted. And the day after that, 20 more people got punted. And then, you know, everything. It's horrible, isn't it? It's horrible. Well, the lack of transparency is the thing that's most galling. When they actually come in and say one thing and do the opposite, you think, I would much rather that you tell me to my face that there's going to be some kind of problem. Yeah. Or that. I might have to start thinking about what my options might be if I do get made redundant or whatever. Anyway, there were a number of people who'd kind of seen the writing on the wall and I was one of them. So I actually left and went to Channel 10 in... um, I finished up at the end of September. Actually, I finished up. I'd resigned just before September 11 happened. Right. But I was on air doing an evening shift when September 11 Right. Let's happened. talk about that first. Yeah. Well, that was um, that was incredible because, you know, there's, there's a few things that you remember where you were when they happened. And I, I, was, on the, I was on the wireless in the country when, when Princess Diana died. So yeah. I remember getting updates on that and, and, you know, being able to tell the listeners, yeah. keep them up to date with that breaking okay. story as well. But September Which- 11, ha- of course, happened about seven minutes to the hour, it was my last bulletin of the evening being the 11 p.m. bulletin. I was about to walk out the door and um, just happened to look up at the TV and saw just smoke pouring out of a building and thought, what the hell's gone on there? You know, turned the sound up and sat down. I had my bulletin pretty much ready to go yeah, and looked up do. and just went, what's that? Turned it up. And all I was able to kind of glean in that last few minutes from CNN or whatever it was we had on was that a plane had flown into one of the World Trade Center buildings. Did it actually dawn on you that that is what had happened? Because I don't know how big the buildings are or didn't know how big the buildings were, you could see the the gash in the side of the building, but it was impossible to tell what size plane. Yep. Had gone in. We just didn't have any information at that stage, and of course, it was not that long after, obviously, that the second one fl- flew into the other tower. I bet it dawned then. It, it certainly <laughs> did because they, they had cameras trained on the building. Yes, you, they, you know, we, we we've all seen the footage. But but before that happened, and I just, I I it was I was so shocked. I didn't real I didn't write anything down. Which, of course, then, you know, when somebody saw the bulletin following day, said, don't tell me you didn't have it in the news. And they said, yeah, 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 I did. I ad-libbed three lines just to say a plane has flown into one of the World Trade Center buildings in New York at this stage. We don't know what kind of aircraft it was and there's no word yet of any casualties, but, of course, we'll keep you up to date with this breaking story. And then cut out of the news booth at five past and the, the overnight uh, journal had turned up, Mark Peepers, in, in, in those days. And because I'd already resigned and it's probably something I should have thought again about, but I'd been a bit disenfranchised by the whole scenario of them, you know, coming in and and everything changing. So I didn't really feel particularly well disposed towards the joint at this stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said to Mark, do you want me to stay? And he said, no, it's all right. And I went... Mate, I'm happy to stay. <laughs> and he went, no, nah, off you go. And I went, as long as you're... And then, of course, I'm driving home five minutes later and hear the second, hear the, yeah, know, the yeah, second yeah, one. Yeah. And he just went, oh. Anyway, a cast of thousands turned up 
and worked through the night and then I was back in there the following day doing it anyway. So, you know, and I went home and, and watched it uh, unfold. Reflecting on that now and knowing that you were one of very few people in Sydney to deliver that news at that time. Yeah. Knowing what we do know now. Mm. How do you f- feel? Like what? It's it's, it's, one, it's one of those moments in time. It, it is. And it, and it really dawned on me, of course, you know, as, as things kept happening and then as we we're following up and, and just that terrible vision of, of, you know, people jumping from the buildings and, and it's, it's an incredibly powerful, um, and important, you know, incident in, in the, in global relations, basically. Um, but it was, I, I, I realized the following day, you know, when I woke up and just went, wow, that was, that's a massive, massive, massive moment. Changed the world forever. Yeah. How do you control, and we'll talk about this kind of thing because um, throughout your career beyond that, you would have covered many stories that have a major impact in, in history. How do you control your emotions when you're delivering that kind of um, story? I spoke to Glenn about it and he said you just rely on your professionalism and mm. you're able to get it through it. But there are some stories that are just downright awful and horrible. I like speaking to experienced people and learning how they're able to do that because it's not something that is particularly easy when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people dying. And, I mean, you would have been around when the um, Boxing Day tsunami was uh, around as well. You might have been on holidays, but... I was, oh, yeah, I was in hospital. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, we'll get to that as well. Um, but, like, just generally, there's stories that have a bigger global impact mm. and mm. there's all kinds of things that happen. How do, you, how do you, as a person, keep that emotion in check where you don't let it override you and, and, and you have to present a news bulletin that people are going to hear for yep. the first time. You, you, you are allowed to display a bit of emotion. I find it strange to hear people who read the news with the same kind of tone and cadence, whether it's a furry animal story or a, you know, 600 people have been killed because of a ferry sunk off the coast of the Philippines. They're not the same. No. And, and neither should they be treated the same. But you have to be dispassionate and keep the facts at arm's length while you're presenting it on the wireless because you are supposed to be an independent, subjective observer. Um, and it is. It just comes down to that professionalism. And sometimes it is hard to dissociate yourself from these things. It's not, as if, not that you're not feeling it. But you can't let your own personal emotion cloud the delivery. It has to be still professional and uh, factual, and making sure that you are conveying the the, the seriousness, yep, or um, you know, or not of the story. If it's you know some sort of celebrity news, if that's not a complete oxymoron. <laughs> Um, but you do, you do have to, you know, sort of take a deep breath sometimes and just get in there and read the words as if they don't mean anything to you yeah. while sounding as if they do mean something to you. It's, it's a strange balance. It's really important also to have trust in your workmates that they're able to deliver you the copy Correct. as accurately as possible Correct. because there are times where we've left words out. Etc. Yes, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, look, and that happens to everybody, especially when you're rushing. You know, one of the things I used to have to do 
at 2GB was the Alan Jones interviews. So, you know, you, you'd, he'd start ostensibly at 10 past seven, but often not till 20 past seven. But you had to almost invariably be leading the 7.30 news with, uh, you know, whoever at Joe Bloggs has told Macquarie's Alan Jones, blah, blah, blah. And that would be your lead story at half past seven. So I'd be rolling on that interview and trying to pick the eyes out of the story, write the copy and find an appropriate grab and have that all ready to go for 7.30 and then be in the booth at 7.30 to read it Yeah, <laughs> along with the rest of the news. So. Yeah, again, it's something that people wouldn't necessarily understand that uh, no. listening to the radio, that just hear it flow seamlessly Hopefully. Every, <laughs> <Yes>. every morning. <laughs> but um, That's what it sounds like. You made the progression there. You said there that you went to Channel 10 briefly, but it was yeah. 2GB that um, you then made the move yeah. to before all of the big guns came over? Before, yeah. I, um, I went to sports tonight. Um, and my learning from three months in television is that TV is a much more cumbersome medium than radio. Not for and you? Not for me, no. The immediacy of radio, the capacity to actually, you know, have a 20-second story done in 90 seconds as opposed to having a 90-second package for the TV done in six hours... It's an extraordinary flexibility and capacity that radio has that TV just simply doesn't have. Mm. I enjoyed learning how the process of writing a package and using, you know, sound on tape and um, doing writing LVOs and putting packages together and actually going out and, you know, interviewing people and finding things out and putting the story together. But then to have to get the pictures write around the pictures and then sit with an editor in an editing booth and say, yeah, I want this, I want this, and then having them actually put it together. Marry it all up. Oh, gee, Painstaking. Tedious. Too many <laughs> um, too many cooks? Not too many cooks. It just it just didn't have the didn't have the impact for me that radio and the immediacy is the big thing because yeah. if you're wanting to run a story on international sport that you hadn't had satellite access to, you're waiting for some international news service to send you a short clip of something. And by that, you might get it in the morning following some overnight action internationally in Europe or in the US or whatever. And then the, you didn't end up running it until that night on Sports Tonight at 10.30 at night, yeah. by which time it's 24 hours old. So for somebody coming from a radio background going, 24 hours old? Are you joking? Like 24 minutes old is getting a mm. bit stinky in yeah. radio land. You, you would have run it once and then moved it along, you know, within three or four hours. This is 24 hours old. You've got to – you really need a totally different mindset about it and just to yeah. say, well, the, the pictures are paramount and the pictures are what drives – the capacity for you to actually run this yarn in the first place yeah, on yeah. The television, and that just—I just really couldn't reconcile that. So, um, yeah, I was there from October two thousand and one till January two thousand. No, December. I probably, yeah. probably was only there eight, eight or ten weeks, maybe. And then I just had a bit of a hiatus and lobbed up uh, to see Chris Smith, who was the PD at Two GB. January 2002, just to see if they had any, you know, kind of news reading, you know, shifts maybe available for me initially. I was thinking I might, be, you know, just do it as casual or yeah. whatever. But then, you know, not long after that, I, I 
I don't know that I knew that Jones was going. There'd been whispers, yeah. but I don't think it had been confirmed at that point. And we certainly didn't know that Ray was was going to be hot on his heels. So yeah, that um, that all happened in the you know in the months following me starting at Two GB. And what was that like for you? Because it wasn't long after Jones started that you became the breakfast news yeah. reader. Uh, it's middle of two thousand and two. Yeah. Um, well, that, that coincided with Justin Kelly actually coming over and yep. starting as news director because um, Corinne McKay had been reading Breakfast. But then everything everything changed. Yeah. The whole joint got turned on its head and the the station just had to find its feet. Obviously, it had a, you know, a star in Breakfast, but then no one else who was there at that stage, and that included, you know, Kerry ann Kennelly and people like that do, who were presenting on air, they didn't quite know what that meant for them. Yeah. There had been other staff there in the newsroom who kind of weren't ready for the impact of it either, I don't think. Yeah. And good people, you know, no question, people like Cameron Hamilton and Paul O'Connell. And, but I, the impact of it was immense and intense and it, it, it just everything changed. Everything changed from, from the get-go. What was it like reading Breakfast for Alan Jones every morning for – a long period of time. Mm. Um, it was six years by the time I pulled the pin. It's incredible. Like, you know, the guy's a powerhouse. I, I did used to kind of think that we as journalists and as the newsroom brought some, you know, some balance and some object, objectivity to the program for, uh, mm. you know, eight, seven or eight minutes an hour. Mm. <laughs> um, and despite um, some blow-ups with, uh, with Jonesy who on – a number of occasions objected to things that we'd run in the news. Story choice. Story choice. Um, you know, well, why did you run Bob Brown? Why did you run, you know, uh, insert name of Labor politician here? It was, it uh, was extraordinary. I, I love the, fa- the fact, and you'll probably recall this as well, we had a, um, a newsroom dinner, which I think might have been out in the, the Sheraton on the park at some stage. Yeah, yeah I remember and that one. AJ okay. was in, in, invited and everyone was a little bit tense about, what he'd bring to the the table, so to speak, and he rolled up, and I'll never forget it. And it's it's actually one of my more prouder moments in the fact that he came up, and I don't know who he singled out or whatever when he was just being introduced by Justin. Oh, here's you know Billy Bloggs. He does this. Well, I heard your bulletin this morning at two a.m. What are you doing there? Well, you mentioned Hanson. It's Ms. Hanson to you. Well, the next one I'm on. Right, you mentioned the d- disgraced leg spinner, Shane Warne. Well, he's not a disgrace. You are. And who's this? Oh, this is Ralph Tucker. Well, I heard your bulletin and my head's just dropped like a pie. And he's, Well, I heard your sports bulletin this afternoon. Magnificent. He even managed to get the gymnastics in there. Monique Russo, a bronze medal at the World Championships in bumfuck Idaho. And I was just like... But yeah. that was that was an amazing dinner. It, it was. I do recall actually <laughs> arriving at that dinner as one of the sort of senior people in the newsroom. It was funny because Jonesy, of course, plonked himself in the middle of yeah. one side of a long table with about you know twenty oh. other people around it. Nobody had sat next to him. So Justin Kelly, Rosa, and I made sure that we sort book of sat down. And, yeah. yeah, we bookended him to you know give some protection uh, to some of the juniors because he could. Absolutely blow up deluxe, and you'd, you'd never know whether he was a listening, b knew, cared, but you'd find out if he did. Quick, smart, and um, I felt for know. some of the overnight people, and we pre-warned, and a few people that were a little bit experienced, like Andrew 
more had given me the tip off about certain things and making sure you had certain scores and you had certain people that were in the uh, Alan Jones stable, as it were, mm. that you had to make sure that you had split times for Brett Hawke in the 100 metres freestyle <laughs> yes. and things like that, or you had to know... Or John Stephenson's <laughs> latest, you know, exploits on the 400 oh, metres. You know, you had to make sure that you were watching the, the, the Shield game on the, on the internet to make sure you knew how many wickets that Brett Lee had and, um, you know, things <laughs> like that. So it was, it was quite a wake-up call for people that were getting calls at like 2.30 in the morning asking for a Sydney Kings basketball score from Alan um, that they didn't have any idea or any interest in whatsoever. So it kind of taught people to always be prepared and be on their toes, I guess. And that's, you know, if you're across everything, then you'll know the answer. You know, that was in the TUE days when we had a big sports department, there were blokes who were, you know, being paid full time to to know what was going on. uh, when you got to GB and it was, you know, Andrew in the morning and then yourself in the afternoon or, or and and maybe somebody on Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon if they were lucky. It's a it's a, a tricky balance, but and you never know who's going to want what. But you know, um, I remember Anthony Clark copping a a spray from Jones and getting his now infamous three out of ten. <laughs> Three out of ten, you. Oh, and you, you just oh. and I, on by the same token, never really had a big blow up with Alan. No, um, but I do remember one day, and again, this was after I'd you know written up the story for the seven thirty to lead the seven thirty news out of his <laughs> ten past seven interview, and he came in, you know, bowling in bluff and bluster, and was like, "Who wrote that story? The start of the news at seven thirty. Mm. Like, Here we go." Mm. That was me, Alan. Brilliant. Oh, okay. <laughs> Terrific. Excellent. Not what I was expecting at oh. all. But he went, oh, no, great. You just you managed to, you know, you got to the nub of it really quickly. Oh. Excellent. Well done. Keep it up. It's like, oh. oh, hang on. Who was that? And what's, what, yeah. what's he done with Alan? Oh, another thing was at that particular dinner where AJ tends to have stories that go a little bit longer than the, the normal human. So <laughs> we're talking in the vicinity of 45 minutes. And as you can imagine, young journos um, on a company put-on dinner uh, downing the alcohol like nobody's business. No one dared to leave the table during Alan's story. Mm. So 45 minutes going on, and I'm holding Brett Zarb's leg next to me because I am desperate for a snake's hiss. (laughs) Alan finishes his story the room clears because everybody had the same thing and darting off to the toilet. Oh, it's just Didn't one of those make everybody things. sing? Anyone who was late had to sing? Was yes, that, that night? I believe that to be the case. Oh. Oh, and then it was also the infamous Christmas party where you'll never be as bad as you what you were today. <laughs> that was the first time the 2GBTUE merger was... Um, taken off the table, I believe. But um, yeah, that was mooted for some time, and that, <laughs> that the suggestion that initially back of house would merge, which mm. would include the newsroom. I think that first happened in sort of two thousand and four, two thousand and five, mm. and we were horrified at the idea that yeah. there would be one newsroom for the two commercial stations. Yeah. Obviously, that's now all come to pass. But as someone who's lived and breathed it, that's obviously and worked on both sides of the divide. Mm. It's sad, isn't it? It is. It, it, it's it's a commercial it's, reality. Exactly. But- <clears throat> yeah, and it's emblematic of, of media uh, and 
the difficulties that people have commercialising media these days. I still think you have to spend money to make money and the idea that you can cut costs and gut staffing levels at particularly at a talk station, which are by their very nature reliant on people to produce content. And if you don't have people producing compelling content, then you don't get the listeners. And then if you don't get the listeners, you don't get the ratings. If you don't get the ratings, you can't adjust your advertising rates. So your revenue goes down. So it's a vicious cycle which ends up taking you to the bottom. And this idea that you can just keep removing resources and still produce a quality product is it's absolute it's an absolute fallacy. Well the old argument was that news never used to make money, it used to cost money. Well gone are those days because you can sell the news opener, you can sell the finance credit, you can sell the sports credit, you can sell the weather credit. Yeah. They're not paying bottom dollar for those credits either. And they're not paying journos $4 million a year either, no. right? So, um, so that was always an argument that was tossed up that has, again, also gone into the yeah. complete fallacy bin. And the, the multi-million dollar deal with the Australian Traffic Network, like mm. there's money there. I think there is money there. Well, I mean, you know, you've got to deliver a return for shareholders. Corporations law dictates that that's the case and that's fine. But it shouldn't also necessarily mean that you have to save, you know, a few thousand here and there. And some journos' salaries, and people would be horrified to think that there, there were people working at 2GB as fully-fledged professionals getting paid 30 grand a year. Less. Journos, less. Yeah, there you go. And you, and you think, well, yet the station and... Ray and Alan and, you know, everybody else had expectations that these people would be able to do a flawless, perfect job all the time, every time. When we'd gone from not that long ago in the mid, you know, in the late 90s, you had long-term professionals who had been doing it for 25 or 30 years. Those people are gone. And the idea that all that IP has gone with them, all those skills, all the... all that you know, potential mentoring, training for younger journos just doesn't exist anymore. So it's a much skinnier proposition. But yet the expectations of the standard of product that you're expected to deliver, uh, they haven't changed at all. You mentioned mentoring there, and I did a little bit earlier on, the fact that you enjoyed teaching younger people as they, as they came through. Yeah. You also mentioned there are a new generation of journalists coming through. Didn't always marry up. I was someone that always appreciated copying a serve or copying a bake. <laughs> and we had many run-ins. Well, not run-ins, but there was many times where you'd said, right, you've left this out, this is a mistake, but I'd take my, my medicine and I'd move on. There were other people in the in the building weren't good at taking medicine. No. Um, you were someone that was tied to old school values of accuracy and the importance on that and spelling and grammar. And and it had been hammered into me from working with Alan and Ray, but also working with, you know, old pros like Sandy and, and Steve Blander, um, Greg Burns and, and Glenn Daniel and Greg Henrix. It's all about you, passing it this, down the food chain. Is, exactly. This is the way this is the, the way it's done properly. You do it once, you do it right, terrific. And if you make a mistake, let's learn from it so that we don't 
repeat the mistake. Let's not do it again. Let's look at what happened, try to figure out what went wrong and why and how we can navigate a path around it in the future. And I guess I, you know, it's a high-pressure environment because at GB I was reading a bulletin at the top of the hour, then headlines on 2CH at the 15 and at the 45, as well as another full bulletin at uh, at the half as well. So you're on air four times an hour, as well as trying to write copy, edit copy, you know, keep an eye and help the editor out. You did have a breakfast editor, but those people um, were also trying, they were also learning a lot of them as well. We we're all learning as we went along. And you were reading up to midday at that stage oh, as well. Yeah. It's not like mm. one of these, you know, fancy pants, you know, shortened shifts where you go half half read, half on road. It was yeah. read all the, days, way up it was to all the way through. That's right. And it, and it was, you know, by the, I think it was, what did I figure out? I'd, I think I ended up reading 36 bulletins every day or something ridiculous like that. And you just think, wow, that's, that's, that's a lot of work. And to be able to concentrate to deliver them, hopefully as flawlessly, well, you know, aim for flawless. And if you, only make one or two mistakes a day. Well, good. That's good. Um, and the midday bulletin, you know, often used to be quite extensive. That was a little <laughs> in-joke of ours, which started with, I think, between myself and yourself, that I think we may have had seven minutes to start with. I yeah. think the record may have been up in the 24, 25 it, region. Yeah, it certainly was. And um, I don't think know, Chris Smith was Smithy, too impressed. No, Smithy wasn't that happy. <laughs> Because he just – there was no – because it wasn't networked. The 2UE no. midday news used to be – it was 15 minutes yeah. and everybody knew it was 15 minutes because it was networked and uh, that was that was the thing. The GB midday bulletin wasn't networked to anybody. So the only stations that it had affected were 2GB and I think even 2CH. We used to pre-record the, the news for yes. the yeah, midday. Yeah. So uh, that, that was kind of – you know, that was irrelevant as well. So we just took liberties. Um, and how it was did, almost how, as how did to, we get it to, out to like 23, oh, 24 just minutes? Keep racking up international stories <laughs> and bringing back things from earlier oh, in the day and updating oh. stuff. Lots and lots, you know, you'd have five minutes of sport with lots of grabs and oh. people out on the road doing 60 second donuts and voices and things. And, you know, well, it was fun to keep ourselves was, oh, entertained. It, it was hilarious. Yeah. Oh. It, was, it was very good fun. Um, and some of the oh, one of the other great joys was making up names for people, and the the wink off was the other another of the highlights <laughs> for me, which came from um, Peter Jenkins, who I'd worked with at Two UE. Uh, used to do weekend sport at Two UE, and then he moved over to GB and was doing the same thing. Mm. But if you watched Chinzy read the sport through the booth door which inevitably had a little window in it. Mm. You could see at the end of his sports read, he'd get to the end and he'd say, that sport, I'm Peter Jenkins. And you could see his held the, the, the gap there is him winking and tilting his head. That sport, I'm Peter Jenkins. So we took that and Andrew Moore and I used to have a wink off during the news in breakfast on the Alan Jones program, where the idea was to try to get the biggest gap you could without it being obvious and noticed by anybody in particular. particular so the emergency tape didn't kick in. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, 
So he'd be going, that sport, and his head would be wobbling back and forward and he'd be winking madly, I'm Andrew Moore. And then I'd do the same thing at the end of the news. That's the latest Macquarie National News. I'm Rama Barker. And you just try to, yeah, anyway, small things amuse small minds, I guess is probably the upshot from that. And the, uh, the, um, the BBC news bulletins and uh, international news stories that we used to use, oftentimes you didn't know who the reporter was, so you just make up a name. And the Applegate had, um, family. The Applegates, yeah. <laughs> we, had, um, we had Barnaby, Barnaby Duch and Barnaby Duchfordson <laughs> on occasion, um, and you'd get calls from people who knew that you'd just made that up just <laughs> in absolute fits of hysterics just going, <laughs> I know what you did there. Oh, dear. <laughs> Uh, what wasn't funny was when you made the news yourself. Yeah. At a staff Christmas party in 2005. 2005, yeah, early December. You were stabbed. It's still, you, still surreal. When you think about it now, do you have? is there any long-lasting effects for you mentally or no? I'm, do you have there drunk aren't. nightmares? Or? I don't. I, it does, I mean, it does pop up from time to time, but it's not unmanageable um, these days. And I, whether this is a legitimate psychological approach to something like this or not, I don't know, but it seems to have worked for me. I decided relatively soon after that I wasn't going to let it affect me mentally or psychologically, and, um, and I haven't. I've got one kind of lasting physical uh, outcome from it, which is that I don't have a left biceps because the, one of the um, stab wounds was in my left biceps and cut the nerve that's you know that that works that muscle so it's just kind of withered away to to nothing and it's not it's not coming back but otherwise i'm in pretty good um physical shape and and psychologically it's not really a thing it's still bizarre to me that it happened at a private party yeah. on a quiet street in Sinai's yeah not where you'd expect something like that to happen do you remember how yeah. it all yeah. unfolded and yeah. just being there with all of the staff with it that mm. were there at that yep. time? Yeah, I do. I do. I have very vivid memories of it, probably not surprisingly. Um, and just the disbelief, just the what, what, like how, how I, I didn't think. So was anything that the, the thought, feeling at the, that time? Yeah, you were just in yeah. total complete. I've been stabbed. Yeah, I thought the I thought the kid was punching me. I didn't know what he wanted or where he wanted or whatever at that stage, and and I, he just sort of started lashing out, and I thought he was punching me, and I thought, oh, okay, well that's weird. Um, and then I kind of, you know, it wasn't until I turned around and somebody saw and just went, oh, and I went, oh, what's happening? And the pain? No pain. It's a, a sharp blade going in. It was, it was it must have been something like a box cutter or Stanley or something. It was a really thin but sharp blade. So the, I, I don't recall any. Pain, which is might sound strange, but that's not something. Whether I just went into shock straight away, and that's why I don't remember any pain. I had a lot more pain in the days following yeah. my surgery. So, um, do you think that, I could I could be dead here? That that I didn't think at the time, but I I certainly found that out subsequently after I'd had the injury sort of explained to me and. That's why they had to do the open heart surgery, just because the, it had nicked the top of my heart. So it was it was millimeters away potentially from being much more serious than it was. What's it like being the guy that is ordinarily used to 
reporting on the stabbings, <laughs> overnight stabbings, to be the guy that's yeah. leading the news on at night mm. in the newspaper on radio. Mm. Surreal. Well, and I, I kind of was you wouldn't have seen it. Yeah, no, I didn't. I was, <laughs> I was completely shielded from that, and I don't think I still really appreciate how bigger. You know how extensive the coverage was. I mean, my wife told me, but I mean, I don't think she was particularly trying to follow it either. She was trying to just deal with what had happened. Um, it's still surreal. It's weird. It's a it's a really strange thing. As I say, it's bizarre that it happened at all. Um, that it happened to me is it's it's not as if it happened to somebody else, but it's it's not. Um, not something that's going to sort of define me, I guess, and something that I'm that I dwell on too much. But I, I just still think very lucky, or unlucky in the, in the first instance. Very lucky that it it, it didn't um, end much more badly than it did. Because um, your son very was thankful. only one at that stage. Yeah, yeah, and he'd spent. Nearly four months in hospital when he was born, so we'd quite. Well, I was sad with quite you had that enough, day as yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> He'd, we'd quite had enough of hospitals at that point, so we really didn't, um, you know, weren't prepared for this. So it's still even ten. You wonder when nearly eleven years down the track, it's still still you know a vivid, vivid memory. And the recovery took quite a took, while. Yeah, one of the worst things about it was that I didn't end up getting to go to Torino to the Winter Olympics at That's the beginning right. of 2006. So that was um that was a very disappointing outcome. Um but tossing up between getting to go to the Olympics and living. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You take the living part. Only one winner there. Yeah. What do you feel towards the young guy that actually did it? Like because the, you had to relive it, obviously, with it going through the, the yeah. court process. I didn't actually go to the court case. I decided I didn't need to sort of relive it in, in, in that degree. Not in that sense, but you but, still had to obviously yeah. be aware of the, the outcome and yeah. everything like that. Yeah, I was really disappointed initially because he got a two-year good behaviour bond, even though he was well known to police. It was actually a first offence that he was convicted for. Um, and I formed some pretty strong views about uh how crime is dealt with in terms of the justice system and i ended up sort of deciding it's not it's not actually a justice system it's a legal system mm. um because I, I didn't perceive that justice had particularly been done in that case but as time passed and i did you know subsequently do a number of interviews with people you know when similar incidents occurred given that I was in the media, other media people had come to me and, and get me to talk about it. But I hope, and I certainly hope now, that, you know, old mate, whose name is still suppressed because he was juvenile at the time, mm. that he was rehabilitated, that there was some kind of, you know, benefit to him from this instance that that he hasn't just kind of gone oh yeah well that was lucky but you know sucked in righto I'm gonna keep it's an doing what it's I'm a, doing it's a, it's, yeah. a, it's a lesson we jeezy hope, hope so don't you yeah the the worst thing about it was that there were three kids who turned up and one of them had already been he was 21 this uh, older guy um, who was with the the guy who actually stabbed me who had already been convicted twice of something probably minor I don't know but. He, he, this was a third, three strikes and you're definitely going to jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He ended up, um, uh, he took his own life in his parents' garage 
not far from here. So that was a, a that was probably the thing that upset me the most about it. it was kind of like oh, what a waste, like how pointless. And the whole the whole episode was you know a complete waste of everybody's time, effort, emotion. You know, just completely pointless episode. How was it going back to work after that? Did you did things change for you, like mentally, in terms of having to, I guess, well, first of all, talk to announcers on air about your particular situation, and then mm. had to do the job that you had to do. Yeah. Um, or you're pretty good at focusing Just on the get job at hand. Yeah, get your professional head on again. That's the thing. You've got to be dispassionate about it. And I guess was more affected initially, at least when I, you know, was out in public. Um, for the first few months, I was just a bit nervous in public situations, especially when I couldn't see what was behind me. That was a bit weird, but that's not a certainly not something that stayed with me for very long. And again, I think it's sort of positive, personal, sort of internal reinforcement of no, I'm not going to let that, you know, change me or define me or or um, diminish my enjoyment of life or capacity in any way. Do you find it now a little bit ironic that you're the voice of Media Watch? Perhaps <laughs> may have made a uh, a few appearances on the on the show itself throughout your career. I think I was on a yeah once or twice as a you know as when I was doing the news, but now yeah um, that's one of my regular gigs. Um, it's you know I like the show, and the, you know as the old saying about Media Watch is everyone likes to tell they're on it. I think it serves a purpose despite the, you know, the disdain that people like Ray Hadley have for it. Um, I certainly think there's a place for it. And I, I think if, if you have accountability, un- untrammeled, right? untrammeled commercial media is not a good outcome. Not, in, not, in, not in these days where the landscape is, is, is just changed completely. Correct. I'm, I mean, and look, we, we've just seen the merger of the, the 2UE and the 2GB newsrooms and the stations are now under the same umbrella. Any diminution of diversity, of voice, and that comes from owners, no matter how independent and hands-off the owners claim to be, there there cannot fail to be some sort of influence, some sort of agenda, some kind of, you know. It's not the impartiality that everybody expects it to be because- of the infiltration of ownership by its pure nature, Mm. nobody can be completely impartial. No, because they are trying to make money um, and the idea that you can do it in a completely objective and impartial fashion is it's it's just not possible. Um, I think that's, you know, if you are going to, change the media ownership laws as is proposed again so that people can you 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 are able to perhaps own say three radio stations in a market and i presume this is what macquarie media is trying to sort of put off getting rid of 2ch mm. until the law changes so that they can just hang on to it because apparently they're not going to not having any any luck uh, trying to offload it at the moment even though it probably would be quite a handy little earner for somebody if they could you know set it up somewhere probably, yeah um, you, you need diversity. You need different ideas and approaches. And this is why the ABC, I think, is so important because if you're only going to have two, you know, what have we got, three or four companies that own 
radio stations in Sydney, is it possible that it's only going to be two or three if there are more takeovers allowed? Makes the the ABC and its its continued independence vital for media diversity in this country. We'll wrap things up in a sec, but uh, before we do, we've sort of touched on the what you need to do to succeed in, in media in a, a couple of different levels, but what would you say to somebody now that's looking to break into uh, whether it be radio, TV or just media in general while mm. the opportunities that we've sort of said have, have been shrinking? On the, on the flip side, there are other ways people can get their work heard or, or seen with yeah. websites and the evolution of, of digital media. Yeah, that's it. I mean, look, there'd be nothing to stop you setting up your own internet radio station. You don't need a licence or anything as far as I know for that. You can, you know, people have, plenty of people have YouTube channels. There are so many different platforms these days that can allow you to hone the skills or at least start learning the skills that you might need if you do want to get into professional broadcasting or, you know, media presentation or whatever it might be. But have a go. I mean, one of the other things I do is occasionally fill in at 2SER as new supervisor there um, because they have, and I really enjoy sharing my, you know, skills and um, any kind of information that I can help young journos with because people can go in there. If you want to read the news on the radio, 2SER, you can go and do it. There are people who come in. They're volunteers, but they come in, but they get really good training, almost one-on-one training, mm. you know. And at the moment, it's Murray Olds. I know Buzzard's leaving and going to, to UE, um, but he's been there for the last few years uh, and I've filled in for him a number of times. And there are some great radio pros who are working in organisations like that where you can go and have a go. But be prepared to to do what I did. You, you might have to ring a station and just say, hey, can I come in and – watch the show go to where can I come in and help out can I come in and help in production can I you know I'm not a fan of an unpaid internship per no. se but if you want to have a crack and by doing that you put yourself top of mind if an opportunity does come up you've shown willing you've learned some skills you've you've indicated to the the powers that be that you are a useful person to have around whether it's answering the phones or, you know, writing some copy or doesn't matter. Just have a go. There, there aren't the opportunities that there used to be in the country that perhaps, you know, that's something that's sad, but it's an inevitable consequence of technology. But then the te- use the technology to your advantage. It's undoing opportunities in some places, but it's presenting them in others because you can set up, you know, a home studio, um, record some Record some, if you want to be a, a jock, record some some stops, some spots, record a little a, a break, back announce a song, do the time and temp, forward promote what's coming up next and introduce your next song and, you know, fade it in and out. The software's available, microphones aren't very expensive and you just need a laptop. Roland Barker, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. There he is, freelance voiceover artist Roland Barker and home dad. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Rowan, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at Rowan L. Barker. I'm not sure what the L stands for. My guess would be Lewis or Larry. 
You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU, and check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, please leave a rating or review. That way, more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast. Podcast.